I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, hello. Welcome to Jewel Says. I'm Julie. I have a very special guest for you today. Mark Terry, PhD, is a scholar, explorer, filmmaker, and writer. He is one smart fellow. That reminds me of a tongue twister. My mother, Dorothy, loved tongue twisters. And she used to make Catherine do them. And this one particularly infuriated her. She was only little, so I completely understand it. But try this yourself. And you'll see that it's a bit difficult. You might get yourself tripped up too, even though you're an adult. One smart fellow, he felt smart. Two smart fellows, they felt smart. Three smart fellows, they all felt smart. Just give it a try. Anyway, Mark Terry is one smart fellow. In fact, he is an actual fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, the Explorers Club, and the Dadala Institute of Global Health Research at York University, right here in our hometown of Toronto, Canada. Plus, he's working as contract faculty and research fellow at the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University and an adjunct professor at the Faculty of Arts, Departments of Film and Communications at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, not far from Toronto. He also teaches at the Toronto Metropolitan University in the Sociology Department. Mark's film work has earned him the distinction of having made a documentary film on every continent on Earth. His science and nature films have made a significant impact on the policymakers of the United Nations. He continues this work by presenting a documentary film project of climate and sustainability research from around the world at the annual UN COP conferences. The UN honored Mark for his ongoing research project with the United Nations, the Youth Climate Report, now in its 11th year, with a 2020 Sustainable Development Goals Action Award. I'll include the link in the episode description to the interactive geodoc. I'll probably, when I get around to it, go on Facebook and include the link there too. Mark's other ongoing research project, the Planetary Health Film Lab, 
is now in its fourth year and focuses on amplifying the voices of Indigenous youth from all over the world with documentary film. Both projects have been funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. He has been decorated with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for International Humanitarian Service. He has been presented with the Stefansson Medal by the Explorers Club for documenting climate research in the polar regions. The Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television acknowledged his lifetime achievement of producing environmental documentary films with the Gemini Humanitarian Award. Last year, in 2022, he was knighted by the City of Vaughan in the Order of Vaughan for his contribution to documentary film research as an instrument of social change. In 2015, he was listed as one of Canada's top 100 greatest explorers by Canadian Geographic magazine. His latest documentary, The Changing Face of Iceland, is the third in his trilogy of films examining the impacts of climate change specifically in the polar regions. It premiered at the UN Climate Summit, COP26, in November 2021 and has won 12 international film awards. The first two of the trilogy are The Antarctica Challenge, A Global Warning, and The Polar Explorer. I kind of like the sound of that. Dora, the Polar Explorer. I think it works. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to trivialize your work, Mark. These things just enter my head. Mark's first book, yes, he is also an author, the subject of his successful PhD dissertation, the Geodoc, Geomedia Documentary Film and Social Change, was released in 2020. In 2022, he published two books, one co-edited with Michael Hewson of Central Queensland University in Australia, called The Emerging Role of Geomedia in the Environmental Humanities, and his most recent, which we'll talk about today, Speaking Youth to Power, Influencing Climate Policy at the United Nations, which is available for pre-order on Amazon now, with a release date of February 4th. When I checked chapters in Canada, it said it was sold out, but it could be available by the time I put this podcast up. Check any of your local booksellers if you're interested. On a personal note, Mark is a father of two grown children and a grandfather of three. I've seen their pictures on the socials. They're adorable. And he's able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Somehow, in 2020, he managed to publish another book, Pandemic Poetry, a collection of poetic musings on life during the coronavirus. I suppose when a lockdown forces Mark to stop filming on location, he can't do nothing. What did most of the rest of us do? Sat at home in our track pants, streaming videos, eating crisps, or baking bread. I hope you enjoy my chat with Mark as much as I did. Welcome, Mark Terry. I'm so thrilled that you could join us. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for having me. Look forward to chatting with you. Our pleasure. What I'm saying our pleasure. It's the listener's privilege. Mark has a book launching. Well, he has several books. I've already introduced him. So you know how ridiculously accomplished he is. And I think it may have been about a year ago that we had Carolyn Kelly on the Jules Says podcast. And Carolyn was instrumental in a wonderful film that Mark, you produced it, didn't you, Mark? Well, actually, I directed it. 
And um, the three producers of the film were all women. Oh, okay. I thought that was very interesting. So, <laughs> Now, how did that come to pass? I know this is a bit of a side piece, but... Yeah, well, it's, I shouldn't. I shouldn't use the term "woman" and "side piece" in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of an aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I've always um, worked mainly with women in the field of documentary filmmaking. Most of the documentary films I've worked with were always uh, produced or production managed or production coordinated uh, by women, and I, I tend to use the same people from project to project. But for Carolyn, she was um, one of my students. She was when I taught documentary film in Toronto. And she grew into becoming a documentary filmmaker all on her own. And she uh, acquired this very sophisticated digital camera. And when she um, showed it to me, I went, hey, how'd you like to come to, to Iceland? And so she could shoot it and also associate produce the film. And, um, and other uh, women that I've worked with in the past, like Diane Schwamm from Warner Brothers, she was one of the executive producers. And Melanie Martin, a very talented uh, columnist here in Ontario, has always been supportive of, of uh, my projects in the past. And I gave her the opportunity to be an associate producer on her first film. So that's how it happened. <laughs> well, the film is The Changing Face of Iceland. I have had the privilege of seeing it. Mark, while we're on the subject, is there a place where the general public would be able to see that film? Yes, I can provide a, um, a special link that I can share with you and you can share with your listeners. Um, I don't have it here in front of me, but if I can get that to you later, perhaps you can share it on your website. Okay, I'll do that. I will. I'll share it in the podcast notes. I do tend to share lots of information because I do not profess to be the knower of all. And so many people have so many fascinating things that I can learn about, and I share a lot of podcasts and films and all kinds of things. So I appreciate that. Thank you. But the book is launching. Tell us about you. You do have a couple of books already out. Let's just touch on those, whatever you want to say about them. Okay, well, my very first book was an extended version of my dissertation um, when I got my PhD back in 2019. And uh, that book is called The Geodoc, Geomedia, Documentary Film, and Social Change. And, and that book introduced a new technology, a new platform, a new subgenre of documentary filmmaking that incorporates geomedia. And what I mean by that are things like um, geographic information system maps, uh, like a Google map. That's the platform for an interactive multilinear database documentary film project. So in other words, in one digital space, you can load up many, many uh, short documentary films all on the same theme. And that theme that I experimented with was climate change. So suitably, it's a global issue uh, using a global map of the world. And um, I introduced it at the Paris Climate Summit back in, I think it was 2015. And the United Nations liked the original concept, and they gave me a few notes and a few requests for refinement. So I made those changes to the project, and the following year, um, in 2016, they officially adopted it as a data delivery system. Wow. Yeah, that was very exciting. It was the very first um, kind of student research project that was ever um, adopted by the UN to use for their delegates and negotiators. So that was exciting. That is exciting. And you are a university professor at York U. Yep. You work with a lot of young people then. 
yes, I do. And I, I love working with young people. It, it's a great energy. It, it keeps you young. And they're full of, of novel ideas uh, because they're not tainted with the certain perspective that comes with age, right? So, so they can come up with these great new ideas that make you think, hey, I never thought of that. Let's give that a try. So um, it's very exciting, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I think a lot of people don't give young people credit. And, you know, you do see some negative stories about specific young people in the news. And I think we all need to realize that those are the exceptions. And you don't know what those people went through to get to that point. But there are a lot of amazing, incredible, wonderful, creative, brilliant young people. More and, and and that's why my very first geodoc project was called the Youth Climate Report. And what I did was I collected or curated video projects, uh, short little three to five minute documentaries on climate change from the global community of youth. So I had young people from all seven continents create these little short films and submit them to me, which I in turn submitted to the UN for approval and then added them to this database film project. In this first year, we collected 50 videos. In the second year, 181. And today, we stand at more than 700 videos made by young people around the world. Wow. Well, they're interested in the subject, too. Exactly. Yeah, because you know they, they know that any rules or laws that are created now are going to impact directly on them when they grow up, right? Absolutely. And their children. And I think a lot of young people are worried about the state of the world and worried about bringing children into the world. Which is all the more reason why they um, they should have a say today. Absolutely. Yeah. Like traditionally or historically, uh, young people have been dismissed because they don't have the maturity, the experience, the education to have a say in adult matters. You know, this is why we have age limits on things like uh, drinking and driving and, and that sort of thing. But um, but this is different. These global issues that we're dealing with today involve the young people directly because they're going to inherit these problems when they um, when they turn into adults. So they need to have a say and they need to be regarded as a community. And that's why I wrote this book that we're talking about today called Speaking Youth to Power, uh, Influencing Climate Policy at the United Nations. It sounds like all these young people submitting all these videos was part of the inspiration for this. Yes, absolutely. It gave me the opportunity to um, to deal with uh, young people directly from all over the world, from different cultures, from different faiths, from different uh, social classes, educational backgrounds. And, and when you deal with young people from all over the world, you begin to see certain similarities emerge and, and their devotion to this particular issue is unwavering, and it's genuine, and it's sincere. I, I was surprised to be able to get so many videos, because making a documentary film is not easy. No. <laughs> but but th these kids work very, very hard at, um, at creating excellent little sh documentary short films, uh, and th they can be found all together through this, uh, this project. Did you have to do any editing, or were a lot of the films in good shape, and you used them as is? Yes, I, I didn't want to impose my, let's call it a colonial gaze <laughs> on their projects. So if there was something I thought was maybe out of sorts or, or maybe something that was lacking uh, technically, uh, I would send it back to them and have them decide to make those changes or not. 
And uh, most of the time they, they did. And whenever they didn't, I still accepted it as is and passed it on to the UN for final approval. Uh, if the UN didn't like something they saw, they would make notes. And then I would report back to the filmmakers and say, these are the changes that have been requested. Um, if you want to make them, please do. And we'll add it to the UN website. Uh, if you don't want to make it, that's fine. But the UN would prefer to see it. So are these videos available on a UN website now? Yes, they are. And again, I can provide you that link. If you want to access the project directly, you can go to youthclimatereport.com. And you can, there's the website for the whole project and uh, everything related to the project. But if you click on the big GIS map on the homepage, you can interact directly with uh, the project. Wow. it's I, I'll have to do that. I have to admit, I did scan the book. I read certain parts of the book, Speaking Youth to Power. Earning a living is really getting in the way of my life. Maybe that's the other reason youth are good resources. I know they have to go to school and sometimes have jobs, but uh, they have more energy. I have to say now that I'm old, I have less energy. I am jaded. And I think it's important that their perspectives and their culture are represented. Mm -hmm. And they're not lazy. People think they're lazy. And I also think politicians often dismiss youth because they don't have a vote. Right. But they will have a vote. And I was very interested in the section in the book about the youth councils within government. Mm. And, of course, you point out how important it is to listen to the challenges from the policymakers' perspectives with empathy. So these youth groups aren't just coming in here and complaining. It's being set up as a very respectful, mutually respectful dialogue. Can you talk a bit about youth councils within government? Yeah, it's a relatively new concept because um, government realizes the uh, the importance of the input of young people into policy that will eventually affect them directly, but they weren't quite sure how to do it. So the idea was to create a participatory methodology that would allow for that. And in this youth council idea puts a young person on the policy making committees and, and they would have a say just like every other committee member does. But what is a little bit different is their perspective is regarded as the um, the views of a of a community within the society, right? Uh, just same way we look at indigenous communities or or, or women as a as a certain community. Uh, the young people are regarded that way too. So if there is something in the proposed legislation that overlooks the needs or concerns of the of the community of youth, they had a representative on the committee to flag that. And, and if something else was missing, they could go out and get that information and bring it back to the committee and present that for their consideration. And, and this is um, a, a very important form of collaboration for all members of society. It's very inclusive, you see. And, and it's also very productive because um, once a policy is, is written, all the committee members kind of sign off on it, including the youth representative. And that way, not only do they have you know, a, a role to play in the creation of it, but they also have authorship. And, and that's a very important uh, part of this framework is that um, they put their name on it and they actually created the policy. 
And because they um, are a young person, they are representative of the, of the community of youth so that they can go back and say, you know, a bunch of adults didn't just come up with this and they're shoving it down our throats. We actually had something to do with it. And of course, along with that comes the degree, a degree of accountability for everything. Yes. If they're collaboratively, actively engaged, then they care even more about the outcome. Exactly. No, that, that's exactly right. And, and that's what's uh, important about this particular structure. Uh, I call it um, a framework. There's two frameworks in the book. Uh, one is the groundswell approach, which I call the plan framework because that addresses um, how to best approach large gatherings and protest marches and that sort of thing. Uh, But the direct approach seems to be where things are going. You know, governments around the world have heard the the marches and the protests and uh, Greta Thunberg and everything, right? Mm -hmm. But now, and, and because of that, they've decided, okay, well, let's bring them in, not by the thousands, but one at a time. And this direct framework is um, is growing in, in various governments around the world. Well, and that makes sense. A democracy is supposed to be about representation from various groups, from everyone. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and from my research into um, places around the world that are experimenting with this new kind of collaboration, um, I've been able to come up with, uh, let me see, I think it's five steps or, or five main key features of a framework that helps um, other governments and young people uh, work together. Uh, would you like me to go through them? I would. Well, the, the first aspect that's important is called access. I call it access. So there are often systems in place within governments for some measure of youth participation, right? So youth need to familiarize themselves with these opportunities and take advantage of them. Policymakers also need to make these opportunities known and accessible in an inclusive way for for young people. So the the next uh, component is called respect. And both parties need to enter policy collaborations with an open mind, since neither party is fully aware of the other party's perspectives, experiences, and cultures. Efforts to learn and understand these defining characteristics will facilitate discussions. Regarding youth as a separate and distinct global community acknowledges a culture that the policymaker needs to consider for fully inclusive and representative climate policy, especially among those who are destined to inherit them, as we've been saying, right? Mark will share more about this framework after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
the next component is uh, collaboration. So youth must be prepared to present reliably researched evidence from the credible sources that may be missing from the policymakers' understanding of the community's unique relationship with the impacts of climate change. And the policymaker, in turn, needs to be open to assigning such knowledge collection and accepting it. That's the collaborative component. Uh, <laughs> next is finance. This is an interesting one because um, it's something that is, is necessary but often overlooked. Funding programs and relative mechanisms need to be provided to supplement opportunities for direct and meaningful engagement. Many young people may not be able to afford the travel to government offices, and many government officials do not have the budget to travel to where the young people might be. It therefore becomes apparent that funding programs, especially at the UN level, need to be established to facilitate mutually agreeable places or participatory engagement. That came up again and again. Oh, we'd yeah. love to get involved, but you're too far away, right? I think it's true in any business, in any organization, even in people's households. Funding mm-hmm. often becomes the big sticking point, even if you want to accomplish something. Exactly. One of the other things I was thinking about was this framework would work for anything with any group. It's true, it does. As long as, as representation is not currently there, this yeah. is important to introduce it. And um, I also think that I did read a part in the book that spoke about tokenism, where yes. you pretend you're giving people a voice, but really you're just putting them at the table to make it look like you are, and you're not. That's so true. And this was one of the major complaints of the young people I interviewed for the book. And, and that brings me to this uh, final component of the framework, authorship. So youth need to contribute directly to policy writing and feel they have some acceptable degree of ownership with the creative policy. Review and appraisal phases for youth participants will contribute to this. This component ensures that the voice of youth is not only heard, but is accurately represented in any climate policy. This is achieved by having their names attached as co-authors of any published policy. And this was experimented with a couple of years ago during the Glasgow Climate Summit, you might remember, mm-hmm. when the global youth statement came out. All young people that participate in the creation of that policy put their names on the front cover. And I think that's a very important step. And I think that's important for anything that is supposed to be credible, researched, evidence that you actually took in other perspectives. Of course, in the olden days, scientific research very often did not include a lot of the people who contributed. And that has to be a bit demoralizing. Oh, absolutely. I I work in academia and and I see this uh, um, happen where where students might contribute to a professor's paper, but not be um, mentioned in the final authorship of it. And um, the, the students say they understand, but but I can see that they feel a little left out because they worked uh, pretty hard on, on this kind of project. And even in business, sometimes you'll have a leader who just takes credit for everything that the people who work for him or her do. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we understand it because that's very much how the patriarchal society operates. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that we think about these things and examine them. And just try to do better and give people credit for what they're doing. One of the things that you spoke about was credible sources. Now, that 
is a bit challenging because, of course, the, you hear a lot of arguing in the media about what's credible and not credible. Right. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Well, anytime you're dealing with climate science, it's best to go to the reliable source of the scientific community. So I'm talking about peer-reviewed papers and published works that directly reflect research in the field that represents 30-year data sets, for example. This sort of material is considered uh, reliable. And so are the um, ensuing projections that are based on that historical data. And, and if it's something else, then you need to go to policy sources. Like if you're trying to find a way to, to best word a certain policy politically, then you need to look at, at other examples of successful policy in the past and refer to those as, as some kind of model to work with. So it's just getting the reliable sources that, that can be objectively seen as such as much as possible. And then, of course, even with a lot of policies, you will have big business and lobbyists fighting against those policies and using what they are purporting to be credible sources to argue their case. But really, they have an agenda and the bottom line is money. I think it's completely understandable that we tend to mistrust not only politicians, but business leaders, we mistrust. And I think that's very challenging. And I think engaging youth to this degree should help also dismantle some of that mistrust. Yeah. Uh, there's an example I, I have in the book where um, some uh, oil executives in New York invited young people into a meeting. It's, it's kind of a funny story. And they said, we want to hear your perspective on, on this climate issue and, and, and what we should do. And so the, the young people seize the opportunity, as they always do, and put together a, a very compelling and, and well-researched presentation. And the oil company said, well, thank you. Thank you for doing all this work. Uh, and they left. So basically nothing happened. <laughs> but they, they felt that they did something to hear the youth when, in fact, they didn't listen to them. That sounds like tokenism to me. Exactly. And, <laughs> and this is one of the problems that young people face, you know, is – how do we trust the people that we're collaborating with? Yeah. Is tokenism or do we actually have a say? And, and that's why I felt the need to create this framework to, to help protect them that way. Is this being used actively? You've mentioned that it's been tried in places. Can you yeah. give some good examples? Yes, there's, there's a good example in Lindsay, Ontario, where they introduced a youth council and a representative to the policymaking committees. And um, I don't believe they are climate issues, but they are environmental issues that the committee meets on. And, and it has worked perfectly because everything that the committee wanted to find out the perspective of youth from, then that representative would go in and collect that information. If there was other information that was missing, young people would often point it out. And, and th these were areas of impact that adults did not consider. And, and so that kind of input was very valuable. And then authorship was involved as well. So I, I think altogether, it was a very successful experiment and one in Canada. Um, like I said, there's not many around the world. I think uh, chapter six uh, lists all the ones I was able to find at the moment. But the fact that things are moving in that direction and that most of the examples I give or in the last three to five years, I think that's significant. It's an improvement and it's a start. Mm -hmm. 
So this is the direct approach strategy. That's right. And the plan framework. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, this is um, the the plan framework uh, appeals to the groundswell approach that a lot of young people like to take. And this is mass gatherings, either through in-person protest marches or online campaigns, right? So PLAN stands for P-L-A-N, and the P stands for Protest Protocol. So if you're going to go that route for large-scale participant protests, either in person or collectively online, preparation needs to take place that considers the local laws and regulations for staging such events. This ensures the protest cannot be interrupted or ended for not following rules. This well, is- depending on where you live. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's right. But um, if any country is going to allow you to protest in the first place, chances are there are certain rules to follow. And if you mm-hmm. follow them, you should be able to proceed. Okay, so that's the P. The, the L stands for leadership. And uh, youth climate leaders need to speak at rallies and marches and conferences and other media attended events to bolster their profile locally as well as nationally. If an area does not have a youth climate leader, put a social media call out to find one. It's important to arrange meetings at this stage with local government officials and these young leaders. Opening a dialogue is the first step in establishing youth participation in policy creation. The A stands for action. So coordinated efforts to reach out to change makers with a collective voice through online campaigns, protest marches, or phone zaps. Have you heard of phone zaps before? I have not until yeah. I saw it in the book. I did read this section, you know. Uh, did you? Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, they represent contact that is, that's hard to ignore. Uh, with an individual email, for example, that can be easily skipped. Thousands delivered at the same time cannot. Mm-hmm. And the final uh, component is the end, and that stands for next steps. So once contact has been made with the policymaker, the goal of the first meeting is to secure the second meeting. Instead of demanding climate action, which can be a little vague and aggressive to government officials at this introductory stage, the establishment of a youth council within a government should be proposed. So so that's basically the plan framework when you're working with large groups of youth. This plan framework, I did read this section, and I think it's almost like a useful what-to-do manual for any issue that you feel strongly about, any yeah. issue, not just climate. Well, that's right. And some reviewers of the book called it a toolkit. And it kind yes. Of like yeah, it's, a, it's a toolkit to help you uh, go out there and do what you want to do with, with some level of organization behind you. Yeah. A lot of these strategies you've written about, I think, would be valuable in any level of government. As you said, Lindsay, that's municipal level. You can actually have an impact at the municipal level on things that directly affect your day-to-day life. You don't necessarily have to change the world. I think there's a value in just focusing on the little things, whatever you can, whether it's climate or any other issue. I would like to go back to the funding challenges, however. Have you found ways to assist with funding? is are, are governments reluctant to fund, or is it just because they're so cash-strapped they have a hard time funding the youth councils as a priority? Yeah, well, the way governments uh, work when it comes to funding um, climate initiatives is usually to set aside a section of the budget 
that represents their participation in large scale events like the COP conferences. You know, the UN climate summits are, are considered the working conference for a lot of governments and their representatives. So uh, the budget usually reflects their um, transportation and accommodation at these events. And what it doesn't include is uh, funding for outsiders, non-governmental people or NGOs to participate in the same event. So uh, often young people are felt a little left out. Now, a member of the youth council of such governments would not be left out, but they wouldn't attend in large numbers, maybe just one or two of them. Uh So what's left for the young people today that do attend these uh, events is uh, funding from from NGOs, from philanthropic foundations and uh, organizations such as that. Or or they do a GoFundMe thing to raise uh, the price of their air ticket and they stay at an Airbnb or something, right? But they do come out in large numbers. Uh, but one of the frustrating things for them is even though they're they're able to find the funding to attend an event like this, they haven't been allowed inside the blue zone. The blue zone is the significant area. There's a green zone and a blue zone. The blue zone is where policy is created and, and discussed. And, and that that's where they want to have a seat at the table. And um, it, it's been very difficult for the UN to find a structure that would recognize their their active participation, their meaningful participation. And so I, I think that's still being worked on. But there has to be some kind of um, mechanism in place that would allow the funding of young people, not just to attend the COP conferences, but to come to City Hall or Queen's Park or some other um, government place of, of work, because not everybody lives right next door. And a lot of these people, uh, young people, live very far away and can't afford to get there. So I, I think, you know, if you're going to have a youth council or if you want to actively engage with young people in a meaningful way, you have to create a line item in the budget that accounts for providing funding for their transportation and accommodation when you get together. Let's say the government hasn't even thought of having a youth youth council. You must include in the book some information on how people who want to start a youth council can try and make that happen. Yes. Well, according to the plan framework, um, when you have that first meeting, and, uh, and you try to secure the second meeting. The second meeting is the meaningful one. The first one is just shaking hands, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sort of thing. And if they don't like what they see, they won't give you a second meeting. So you try to secure that second meeting. And during that meeting, that's when you ask, uh, does your existing youth council provide a funding mechanism for us to participate uh, in a meaningful way? And if they don't have a youth council, that's when you bring it up. And usually they're quite receptive to that. They're not going to tell a, a youth representative that they're they're useless and, <laughs> and we we don't have any uh, use for you in in our policy making sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they realize they are important and that they're going to go back and tweet about it anyway. So they're usually very receptive to creating some form of youth council if one doesn't exist. But most of them have some something like that already. Yeah. When Let's say you've organized a protest, you've followed all the protocols. How do you manage the renegades who, with nefarious intent, come out to a mass gathering? Yeah, well, that, that's going to happen for any kind of mass gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's it's pretty hard to control them within the youth organization. That's why you have security at these events, right? And you hope to have the kind of security that is going to keep those uh, rabble rousers in check or take them away and take them out of the equation. What else would you like to share about this book? Well, who's it intended for? Who's the audience? It sounds like young people, but yeah. I think business leaders and government leaders should be reading it as well. Well, well that's right. The, the book really has those three groups and academia as its uh, target audiences. The very first chapter is a very interesting historical look at um, youth activism and how many of the most successful or the most memorable youth movements had something to do with the environment, like going back to the early 1800s in Europe. And I thought that was very interesting. Even the hippie movement was a lot of vegetarianism and living off the land. And uh, there's always been an environmental slant to many of the youth movements, which I found was, was very interesting. And I think that lays a, a good foundation for building on what historically we've seen to be important to youth in a modern day context. I had forgotten that. I actually did read that chapter as well. I have to say, even though you are an academic and you write for academia very often, this book is very readable to the average person like myself. It was interesting. That history chapter was very interesting. I highly recommend, even if you're not planning to take any action, get it for the read. I think what you have to say in this book would help you in your life, even if you're not advocating for climate issues or any issue. A lot of the, a lot of the information in here would be helpful in business. We all have to earn a living. Helpful even when it comes to parenting. When you talk about engaging with youth and actually listening to what they have to say and listening to their perspective, even if you're just parenting, I think a lot of what's in this book could apply to a broad range of situations and relationships. Well, I, I thank you for pointing that part out, too, because that is a big part of the book. And, um, and I've had 30-plus uh, years of experience raising my own children to use as a data set for this. <laughs> and I'm sure they appreciate it. See, my children probably hate when I record all the time all my, my Jules Says stories. Yeah, that's right. You, now, I would like you to briefly tell us about some of the other books you've written. Sure. Okay. Another book that came out just uh, last Friday, actually, is a book about geomedia, and it's called The Emerging Role of Geomedia in the Environmental Humanities. Now, this is an anthology of scholars around the world that are looking at a relatively new uh, field of study, and, and this is incorporating geomedia through a, a pedagogy of teaching and learning as it uh, relates to the environmental humanities. It, it allows for new perspectives, new ways of looking at environmental issues that really help us see a different side of solving environmental problems and understanding environmental problems. So um, that's the one book. Um, the first book I mentioned at the top of all this, the, the Geodoc, and the other book that I wrote that is extremely affordable uh, and available on Amazon is called Pandemic Poetry. Oh. Yeah, this is a book of poetry I wrote during the pandemic 
based on my my perspectives on how life and society and human relations changed over that time. Would you be willing to give people the rights to your poetry to turn them into raps? Oh, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> That would be so awesome. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just putting it out there. Any rappers, we have a book of poetry. I'm saying we. Terry has a book of poetry that you might want to turn into some really good raps. You can use them for whatever. Well, you can maybe make millions and make Terry rich in the process. Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? You hear that Eminem and Drake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think there are some unknown rappers who might be interested too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you got my email address. Just drop me a line. <laughs> yes. Yes. I can share that if anyone's interested. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and, and, and just to save any confusion, my name is Mark Terry. Is I just said Terry. Oh, my goodness. And I know that's your name. I'm sorry. Mark. Yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> Do you have... Any other films or documentaries coming up? Yes, there is a new documentary series I'm uh, co-producing with a company in South Africa. It's called The Protectors. And this is a very interesting look at how indigenous people are fighting capitalistic interests to maintain their lands around the world. Wow. And is that filming soon or is that just in the planning stage? Uh, Yes, we've started filming. And um, we're, it's pretty hard to secure uh, the various places we're going to. So we're still working on that for the subsequent episodes. Uh, this is a mini series, only six episodes, but right now we're shooting the first two. So we expect to have this done hopefully by September. Congratulations. I'm sorry for calling you Terry. No, I do know that your name is Mark Terry. Listen, I've got that my whole life, Julie. Absolutely. It's 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 an old lady slip. Sorry yeah. to say. <laughs> my kids, uh, when I went to elementary school, they called me Terry. I think people just like to say Terry rather than Mark. <laughs> I, you know what? I think it's because it's the last thing you hear, and then it just sticks. Uh, That's be. what I think. Mark it is the first name. By yeah, mind. it is. It's a first. Yeah, I don't know any other people with that as their last name. So you're unique. Thanks. Thank you so much. If there's anything else you'd like to add, now is your opportunity. Well, um, just um, I'd like to say if you're interested in any of the books we talked about tonight, they are available on Amazon or Chapters or Indigo. Uh, You can order them all online, have them uh, delivered directly to your house, which might be a better way of getting the books during weather like this in the winter. (laughs) Or you can uh, go to your local bookstore and, and pick one up. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Terry. Thank you, Julie. Thank you very much. And I hope we meet again. Yeah, absolutely. 